0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today um, or joining us on the recording. We have a great program lined up for you today. We're excited um, to uh, have with us an all-star lineup, and I'll get to that in a second. My name is Kathy McGuigan, and I'm from the Library of Congress. I work on the Education Outreach Team, and specifically, I work with um, our professional development content and uh, looking at ways to disseminate it online. So um, we have been working with National Writing Projects on a uh, three-part series. And tonight, we're gonna be talking about considerations for selecting primary sources. So tonight, this uh, webinar will highlight strategies for representing multiple perspectives and addressing difficult topics and discuss criteria for selecting and using primary sources in instruction. Cheryl Letterly, uh, an Education Resource Specialist at the Library of Congress and also a Webinar Maven, will be leading us tonight in an insightful conversation with an all-star lineup, uh, the current or former Teachers of Residence for the Library of Congress. Each year, the library buys out the contract for an educator for the school year so that that individual or individuals can guide us in the real-world application of using the library's digitized resources. So with us tonight is um, we have with us Tom Bober from St. Louis, Missouri, and we have Trey Smith from Evanston, Illinois. Um, You've probably seen him on other Educator Innovator Hangouts. He's formerly from Philadelphia. And with us, we have our current teacher in residence from New Jersey, uh, Teresa St. Angelo. We hope to be joined later in this broadcast by Ernestine Sweeting from New York City. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the reins over to Cheryl, and I
1: hope you enjoy Thanks, Kathy, this is Cheryl. And my first question is just to build a little bit on the introduction Kathy gave for each of you, which is pretty much your location um, and the fact that you've all been teachers in residence or are right now teacher in residence. And that's um, if you would just one at a time um, and let's go Alphabetically, Um, tell us who your primary audience is and one or two things that you think about your top considerations when you're selecting primary sources for your audience. Um, So, alphabetically, Teresa,
2: you're first. Okay, so my primary audience are young learners, um, kindergarten, K to two, and I forget the other question now. (laughs) One to two considerations. Okay. So um, what we're looking to do or uh, what I'm looking to do with uh, kindergarten teachers is to develop uh, a rich resource of primary sources that motivate and engage students uh, to help them learn and enhance their curriculum and their learning. great Tom how
1: about you would you go next please
3: yeah my audience is my audience is primarily k through 5 and a uh, couple things that I'm looking for are a uh, connection to uh, being in the library sometimes a connection to literature or a connection to a content area and another consideration that I'll take into effect often is uh time factors. So if I have a source that is going to take um, a lot of time to really make sense of and make meaning out of or something I can, uh, students can uh, address very quickly.
1: That's fantastic. Thanks, Tom. Um, Trey, what's, what? tell us about your audience. You're in a little bit different position now, so you can either answer for where you are now or for where you have been recently. Your choice.
4: Sure. Well, I guess I'll just talk um, a little more broadly about if I'm working, whether I'm working with teachers or students um, in terms of teaching science or teaching about technology or engineering. Um, I'm really looking for specific primary sources that relate to you know topics in science and engineering. Um, the question is, you know, are those primary sources Are am I trying to teach some kind of content? Am I really going to be able to find a primary source that uh, teaches a kid about photosynthesis? Uh, Probably not. That's probably not what I'm going to use a historical document for. Um, So then I have to ask myself, so what what is it that a historical document can help me address? And what is it that is related to science, but that I can use a primary source for, uh, to help uh, students do some inquiry? So for instance, thinking about If uh, there is some kind of natural event or some kind of disaster even that affects humans or affects societies, then there might be primary sources that can speak to that. Um, That would be something I'd find in the standards. Or maybe I'm trying to provide students with examples of scientific practices, right? How do scientists write? How do they think? How do they uh, do investigations? And so maybe primary sources uh, would give me a window into that.
1: That's fantastic. Um, since we kicked this off, we've been joined by two more former teachers in residence, Rebecca Newland and Ernestine Sweeting. Um, Ernestine and Rebecca, I'm going to ask you just to say a quick word about where each of you is coming from. And then the question that we've been wrestling with just a little bit, uh, an easy one, is who's your primary audience and what do you think about when you're selecting primary sources, just your top one or two considerations. So, Rebecca and then Ernestine, would you please um, tell us where you're coming from, who you work with, and what you think about, please?
5: Hi there, this is Rebecca, can you hear me? Excellent. So my primary audience is high school students, um, but because I'm in the library and I'm not working with one subject area, you know, I'm across all the subject areas, so I feel like that gives me a lot of things that I need to think about when choosing primary sources. But mostly I think about the needs, the needs of the class, the needs of the teacher, the needs of the students, what my, my goal is and how I can best meet those needs with some items, and then My other is for looking for high interest things. Unfortunately, high school students are sometimes harder to win over with primary sources than maybe your younger students are. And so I want, I look for things that are sometimes shocking on purpose to then get them into the subject area I want them to be in or something that they've never seen before. I don't know if you've heard of the the book recently, it was uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. And in it, it has so many interesting photographs and kids love that. And that's the cat. Um, and so that is really um, kind of the kids love that book. And so I, I kind of said, well, this is great because those are primary sources. And so that has led me to be even more interested in making sure I've got things that are going to attract their attention first. And then I sneak in the really important ones um, while they're not paying as much attention. And then they, then they get into it and they are engaged.
6: Hi, everyone. I'm Ernestine. Can you all hear me? I see the heads nodding. That's awesome. So I'm um, an instructional specialist with the New York City Department of Education, and I work in a central office. And my audience is predominantly K to twelve teachers, administrators, superintendents, principals, um, coaches, anyone that works with teachers. So my work basically is thinking about how educators can use primary sources and making sure that they're aligned to instructional goals of a unit, instructional goals of a lesson, and how those resources actually allow
1: students Aligned to the goal a lot of time on is thinking
6: about how to select the best items and also the number of items that teachers select to tell a story um, about some historical event or topic or or theme.
1: When, when we first started talking about this, I was so excited at the range of experiences that um, you all bring to this. And we've gotten a taste of that in these opening comments. Um, I'm going to ask Kathy, please, to pull up the page to show the primary source sets. I want to dig in just a little bit to some specifics because you've identified quite a range of things that you think about and and a lot of that's dictated by your audience so kathy go ahead if you would and pull that page up and um since we're going to be talking about multiple perspectives and difficult topics
0: I think we lost Cheryl. Um, Okay, so yeah, I'm going to share with you uh, primary source sets, um, and you should be able to see that on the screen right now, and Cheryl will join us when she can. Um, Okay, and um, she was working with, uh, Cheryl, are you there? I'm here. Sorry for the uh, temporary small disaster. Yeah. So it's, um, I think the way that Hangouts work is um, that whomever is speaking, the screen is showing. So uh, you and I are going to have to talk so that my screen is up for everybody. So walk me through what you want me to click on. Okay, so let's take a look at the immigration primary source
1: sets. Right, and I'm going to talk for just a minute while you navigate to that. Um, I'm still seeing the the screen, Kathy. Um, What I was saying before my connection dropped so rudely was that we want to look at multiple perspectives and difficult topics. And there are certainly many opportunities in uh, history and literature to do that. But let's start with immigration because it covers the K to 12 spectrum and gives us lots of opportunities. So Kathy, I'm going to mute myself um, in just a second. (laughs) What I'd invite our panelists to, to do, is um, and Kathy maybe you want to moderate the order of this or maybe you guys can self-regulate is just look at some specifics in the set maybe pull up an item or, or name an item or two you all know this set what's an item or two that you wrestle with or one that you would definitely use so I'm going to restart my browser in hopes of getting uh, a good, strong connection, and invite you all to talk about what you'd think about specifically in the Immigration Primary Source Set.
0: And I'm gonna ask our uh, super guests, can you see the Immigration Primary Source Set now?
5: Okie dokie.
0: All right, so, um, hi. <laughs> um, so, uh, Trey, did you get uh, Cheryl's question?
4: I, th- I think uh, we were supposed to be thinking about the items in the primary source set for immigration and thinking about uh, maybe some items that we would be interested in using or would use in our context and ones that we, we might not. And why and why not? I think that was that was it. Rebecca, you can or someone else, Teresa, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Ernestine.
1: Okay. For some okay. Hi, there seems to be some confusion. Can you hear me? Yes, I see some nodding heads, thank you. So um, Kathy is struggling to pull this set up and now I see um, where we are. Kathy's working to resolve that. So the question is, um, what would you think about in choosing a primary source uh, from the immigration primary source set, and and you might think about what you'd use it for because that's certainly a Consideration, but there might be other things that you think about when you're choosing an item um, So let's go ahead and um, Kathy I'm not sure what you want me to do so I think we'll just launch the conversation Um Maybe if you can't see the, if you need to refresh it, pull up the primary source set on your own page, um, panelists, and talk about one thing that you would or would not use and describe it so that until we get the screen up, everybody can imagine it. Does that make sense? Yes.
2: <clears throat> you know, no, no. I don't have I don't the have primary that. source set up, but does anybody know if the Statue of Liberty is one of the images in that primary source set? Because with K to 2, that would be one great uh, primary source I would start with.
4: So. I'm not actually sure uh, about the Statue of Liberty one. I think uh, there are a couple of different uh, ones with uh, uh, maybe some, there's one uh, with some immigrants arriving on a boat from Ireland, I believe, or or maybe leaving Ireland. Um, I was interested as I was looking through, and this is actually not a set that I've spent a lot of time with as a science teacher, but something that I um, would be interested in looking at with students, potentially, as we're thinking about math and science Uh, at at the intersection of history and social studies would be some of the ways that um, map makers have used uh, to represent data. So in this case, uh, I should be screen sharing now uh, looking at uh, the different groups and where uh, they've immigrated from and how that is shown on a map. This map is broken up into a couple of different, D- different pages, but how um, do we represent this? And then how is this uh, represented maybe over time? Um, so if I were doing some kind of computer science class, I might be able to think about some kind of dynamic map um, that would add a time dimension to this, uh, so it's not just a snapshot. But in my mind, these would be um, useful and not just um, you know thinking about data representation, but also in you know making some cross um, disciplinary connections. And as we're going to start talking about Um, potentially um, you know topics that we want to be mindful of you know some of the language that's used to describe um, certain groups here um, very much um, you know could be problematic but it's worth discussing with students and uh, honestly as I think through as a science teacher there are were scientific attempts uh, ill uh, I think ill uh, defined and ill like not well done attempts to uh, apply some scientific uh, lenses to groups of people Um, which might be, uh, you know, something that is fair game, especially for a high school teacher. But just as I'm looking through the set, there are at least three different maps um, that represented data in terms of immigration.
5: If I could jump in after what Trey said, i really um, latched on to what he just said about looking at the language that was used to reference immigrant groups and immigrants, because that brings me to two of the pieces that I particularly like, which are the um, a vigilante letter um, from the California Vigilante Committee and the song Don't Bite the Hand That's Feeding You. Because both of those use very, very strong language and very particular kinds of language to talk about immigration and immigrants, and I think we can make a lot of connections to the things that we hear in the news today and particular plans that may be coming about for um, immigration laws in the near future, and I think that that's a really, a really interesting connection if you look at the, the charts and you make your connection in your science and your math class, and then bring it over to your English class where you're looking at the language that is used, and you can make a lot of connections in those pieces there and talking to kids about how things um, are, are different and still the same.
1: Fantastic, Rebecca. Rebecca and Trey have both touched on the ways that you can use primary sources to cross disciplines, and I would invite the rest of you either to build on that or to add another angle, because that may not be what all of you are trying to do, depends on uh, what you're teaching. So um, I'll let you, whoever gets the microphone unmuted next, please jump in.
6: I'd love to jump in on that. Um, I, I was looking at the, the set and thinking about the spectrum for K to 12. One of the things that we, think about is exposure for the early grades. So I was looking at the, um, which one is it? Taking the life easy on an ocean liner. So of course, if I were to share that particular item with early grades, my intention would be very different than if I were going to share that with an upper elementary classroom or middle or high school classroom. So the thinking around the primary sources is really what is the intention of its use. Um, Even the, um, looking at the one that has the literacy test, of course that might mean nothing to early elementary or even the, the elementary grades, but it'll have a totally different meaning for the upper elementary grades. But exposing students Two primary sources at a very early age allows them different opportunities as they grow and progress in their learning so this particular one with the ocean liner the younger ones are going to be all excited about the clothing and the number of people they may have no idea what's happening. They won't have the background. They won't have any context at all. But imagine the difference if they've had exposure to an, a particular item when they bring that exposure to an upper grade and they think they know that topic already because they've seen the item. And it just adds a lot more
1: to, to their learning. Fantastic, let me uh, attempt something bold. I'm gonna try to share my screen and show this set that Ernestine has described a couple of items. Um, Ernestine, you mentioned in particular um, the literacy test. And um, Correct me if I'm, if I'm miss summarizing but you, you made the point that younger grade students might really struggle to find any meaning in this, but that upper grade students would see quite a bit more just because of um, their own background, but that there's value for all of them in, in a certain amount of exposure. Um, and this is, again, this is the set. You can see, I'm going to just show our audience who may not know it. This is a primary source set. This is a great starting place for selecting items. Um, It is 18 primary sources on the theme of immigration. There's a teacher's guide, and then the items Trey showed um, the map, and also Trey showed some of this uh, census data that's in there too. And that just what we've heard from so far gives you some sense of the rich possibilities in this primary source set for formats. Um, Tom, I believe you wanna jump in now. So I'm going to mute myself and invite you to dive in and and talk about what you think about from your perspective.
3: Well, one thing that Ernestine uh, mentioned that I will speak towards, let me see if I can get my, there we go, sharing going, hopefully I'm sharing that now, or it will be a momentarily. One thing Ernestine mentioned was this idea of the, the purpose, and it's going to, Can you let me know if you're seeing that, folks? Because I don't think. Yes, we see you. We see the music. Oh, good. Okay, let's bring that back. All right. So one thing that Ernestine mentioned was this idea of purpose, that there's a purpose behind using it. And then Rebecca also specifically mentioned this music, Don't Bite the Hand That Feeds You. And I think it's a wonderful piece because I can envision using it with middle school students. It does have this strong language Uh, where in this one of these lines here where immigrants are actually referred to as curs or mongrel dogs and so I can see students reading this and maybe having to look up that word but having this strong reaction against this song and yet if you look uh, in the primary source set itself there's also an actual audio recording of this piece and if you listen to it it has this very uplifting very patriotic uh, tone to the music and so you've got these conflicting I think emotional responses that go on and I love the idea of students wrestling with those emotional responses wrestling with that and putting themselves in a in a sense in the shoes of some people who were possibly um, on the periphery of this you know maybe they weren't writing the song but maybe they were listening to it and they kind of get caught up in a message that Maybe they don't fully understand, maybe they don't fully agree with, or, um, but at the same time, they're promoting. And so putting themselves in a position that they wouldn't have normally put themselves in, I think is uh, an advantage that primary sources uh, allow our students to explore. But at the same time, uh, those experiences can be uh, at times uncomfortable and uh, at times challenging or even uh, a little bit scary for uh, a teacher or an educator to to take on oh
4: and the other thing the other thing I was thinking about Tom as you're you're talking about the music is, is really trying to get a sense of you know who made this text. Um, So I was showing a map earlier um, and there are some other maps in the set um, and there are even some lists of um, different groups, again, thinking about immigration. And depending on the the terms that were used or depending on the the point or the purpose, uh, some of these were meant to be persuasive pieces, not just, you know, representations of fact and what is a fact and what's factual uh, and who made this. These are all questions that especially um, I'm seeing a lot of stuff on Twitter lately um, about, you know, making sure that students understand, um, you know, who's created text and, and um, you know, what really, no, who, who made it and, like, what's the purpose of the text? And, um, you know, is it biased in some way? And so some of these items, you know, if I show it to, if I show one to a student, they might, um, you know, accept it as, as the truth, right? Uh, versus, uh, and in, in some ways it is true, it's someone's truth. Um, but then, you know, thinking about who's that author and um, was there some kind of bias or did they have a perspective that they were um, pushing? That's not a conversation that probably comes up as much in science as it should, um, thinking, about, um, thinking about that um, question. But that was just something I was thinking about as I was looking at the set. And I don't know if anyone else had any other thoughts on thinking about who, who made this and who created this.
1: I love that question, Trey. And I'm going to add on to that Um, Just to make it a little more complicated, the I think related question of why is it valuable or how can it be valuable to bring in primary sources from different perspectives um, when you want to push students in their own thinking? And and I'm not sure who wants to jump in and answer that, Um, just to spend a little more time on that before we move on to my next question.
6: I'd love to talk about that. I've, I've seen um, a lot of cases where teachers are almost, um, they have this reaction to the difference between when they are just providers or disseminators of primary sources as opposed to allowing the primary sources to tell the story and to help students generate their own thinking. So perhaps when we're, if we're in the middle of a professional development session where the, at the very beginning, everyone's kind of in this mode where they feel like they have to disseminate the content, they have to tell the story, they have to make sure that the students know all of the information, as opposed to allowing the students to kind of generate their own thinking and their own ideas. And for us as educators to take that step back and allow the primary sources to have the power to do that, it's its really a rewarding experience for, for teachers where they have that moment to actually kind of let go a little bit.
1: Ernestine, I really latched on to a phrase that you used. Generate their own thinking. That just struck me as so crucially important, and really the the only way to extract information from primary sources, right? Um, And the chat, the the text chat, has gotten um, gotten busy here. So I'm going to suggest that I mute myself and um, invite some of the others to talk about how that's played out in their experiences. Um, Teresa, I'm going to give you the right of first refusal. You kicked us off and then have uh, been very quiet. Um, so jump in if you want. If not, just um, give it uh, maybe Rebecca. You, we haven't heard from you for a few minutes, and I know this is one of the things that you think about as well. So, Teresa, do you have, what do you think about this?
2: You know, in my school district, the uh, second grade does a huge project with immigration. And this primary source set would be fantastic to use. And I love the idea of using maps. I also, when I lost you, I was trying to get up that image of the family and their belongings, because that's something I could even use in kindergarten. And I think the family is very important. And when you talk about controversial, you know, issues dealing with it, that could be very controversial, that image with a kindergarten student. And it would have to be handled the right way and for them to understand. Um, and and, it, and as actually, I'd love to even use that and, and compare it to families today. And even, you know, some of our own students have gone through it quite a bit to come to our country.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Teresa. Um, you definitely grapple with different things as an elementary teacher than I had to think about teaching high school. Um, Rebecca, what, what are your thoughts on this, please?
5: Well, I like what we've been talking about, about the idea that the primary sources tell different stories, but they, they tell different stories to different people also. So you've got the perspective of the original creator and their intended audience. Then you have the intended audience versus the not necessarily intended audience, but someone who certainly was there receiving that item in the time that it was created in its original form and intent. And then we have our perspectives now in our modern situation, our own, either if we speak specifically about the immigration set, about immigrants versus people who are already in a country, alone that, and then also just students taking this in who come from homes that might have different things to say about any of the topics, and that's, I think, one of the strengths, if we can talk in general for a second, of, of the primary source sets, is that they have tried very, very deeply to capture different perspectives in the sets themselves, so that as an educator, you're not tearing your hair out trying to find, well, I want my students to see alternative perspectives, and you still might want to layer in other perspectives from items that you, you have access to, but it's already been kind of done a little bit in the primary source sets. And that's a nice jumping off point. And I'm also thinking about people who are just starting with primary sources and why that's so nice. And kids too, you can take the kids into the primary source sets and just lay them out on a table in front of them and say, can you kind of talk to me about what different kinds of perspectives? That's easier maybe perhaps with high school kids who might be able to manage more items at one time. Whereas with elementary, you might have to start with just two get them to talk about those and what they see that's different and then layer in additional ones. But I like the idea of just kind of spreading them out on the table and saying, okay, talk about what you see here. What are the the various things that you think are going on here? And then just asking that question over and over again as they continue to look and dive even more deeply into specific items.
1: Fantastic. Um, I'm keeping a little bit of an eye on the clock, but I also don't want to slow down the conversation. So does anybody have anything they'd like to add to what Rebecca said before I chime in with my next question? Yeah, I I do, Cheryl. I, I wanted to point out
6: the idea of the primary source set also being thought of of as opportunities for different ways to approach different learners so oftentimes a student may be more attracted or interested in music or another student may be more attracted to um, an audio And then we have this whole world of serving different populations of students. If we have students who are English language learners, for example, we want to make sure that we are offering opportunities for that group of students to be able to access learning as well. And the primary source set offers those opportunities to a wide range of students who have so many different ways of learning, so that's one of the, the the benefits of the the primary source set is so that teachers have that opportunity to engage students from whatever kinds of learning styles they are.
2: If I could just add to what Ernestine said, I I I love that um, you know her point about the different learning styles. But one thing I like to do with uh, with the the primary sources is I like to involve families. And so I like to send the primary source at home with an explanation of what the students did. And and then the families can even extend the learning. And to me, that's a vital and important um, aspect of doing the primary sources and getting those parents on board and being interested. And the learning just takes off for some of the young learners.
1: And um, Teresa, you have given me the perfect segue to what I thought we should um, move toward before we wrap up. And that is, since we have from all of you this amazing amount of experience, we've talked in, we've talked theoretically, we've talked about the primary sources. Um, we've talked generally about the effect on learners. Um, what I'd love to hear, from each of you is just an anecdote to make it real. Um, Talk about, if you would, an example of a powerful experience when um, you were teaching with primary sources with whatever your audience is, because you do have a lot of different audiences. So um, powerful experience, just a, a minute or two, if you would.
2: Okay, I don't know if uh, there was an order to this, but <laughs> having just done the uh, the presidential inauguration lessons um, talk about powerful, you know it's it was the connection between the primary source images that I showed and the questioning that I that I gave the students to discover on their own and for example, uh, there was a, a the, an image of of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural. And um, you see a little bit of the Capitol building. And then um, you ask the students, of course, what what do they see? What's the first thing they notice and the American flag? And there's this statue. And then you ask them questions such as, you know, you know, it has an American flag or it has that statue. Does every building have that statue? And they'll say, no, it doesn't. Well is this building important? And then, then when they find out that building is very important, and then I showed them the picture of the Capitol where presidential inaugurations take place, and then they took part of that Capitol building, just the columns and the windows, and they matched that up to the primary source, and they could discover that it was the Capitol building. (laughs)
1: Fantastic, um, and I, I don't want to put anybody on the spot by me declaring the order, so I'm going to let you all sort that out. <laughs> I'll, go,
3: I'll go ahead and jump in if that's okay. Uh, one piece that we just did uh, right before our winter break with our fourth grade, being from Missouri, we're a huge uh, Louisiana Purchase, the Expedition, that whole piece is very big in our, uh, in our school and across the state, and so we looked at, uh, Jefferson's letter to Lewis asking him to go on the expedition and did More of a close read analysis of the text to really understand What the expectations were and then we were able to connect with a, a, uh, a local history museum that had more primary sources and look at those pieces pieces that they actually created uh, the journal maps uh, those types of pieces and we had a a debrief afterwards where we talked about this idea of, well, who was impacted by this expedition? And it didn't take very long to realize that not only were there literally dozens, and I have a picture on my library wall where we documented all this of of groups and individuals that were impacted, but they, of course, being who they are and where they're from, were impacted uh, as well. Um, The other piece about that that I love is that Then the teacher did a debrief with them, and uh, one of the students said that they really loved looking at all of these actual documents, even if they were printed off the printer or they were looking at the document itself, um, because it was like, and I'm quoting here, everything you taught us was real and actually happened. So it made it real for them, and I don't think you can get uh, much more powerful than that, whatever topic you're talking about.
4: Well, I'll just jump in. I I think I have a a Missouri connection actually, Um, actually a couple of connections here. So I um, worked with some third graders at one point and we were um, looking at primary sources about plants and we were really interested in how do scientists study plants. And to get a sense of that, we actually uh, started historically and uh, looked at some some scientists who were working with plants. And so uh, these uh, pictures are from uh, the Tuskegee Institute, which is now Tuskegee University in Alabama, which is near where I grew up. Um, And George Washington Carver um, taught there. And these are some of his students, presumably. And and Carver was born in Missouri. That's the connection. Um, I think he was born in Missouri. So um, that was my connection there. But what we were doing uh, with these photos is uh, students were looking at the photos. And we didn't we didn't, we didn't talk about what they're doing, because honestly, uh, I didn't know. Um, I have as much info um, as they had, except I had maybe a title and a date, um, and they didn't have that information. But uh, one of the things that struck me was just how um, interested, engaged the students were in looking at all the details here and really not taking uh, anything for granted, right? Um, and there was so much opportunity for the students to uh, make some... Uh, inferences about, you know, was he watering the plant? And then students were talking about how, oh no, um, there are a bunch of different bottles that probably isn't water. He might be doing different things uh, with the different uh, things in each bottle. Uh, and one of the things that stood out to me about using a photo like this, and and by the way, you know, it took some time to find a photo that I wanted, right? This, this was, uh, I wanted a photo uh, that showed a historical example of a scientist. I wanted a scientist of color. Um, I wanted to have some mystery in the photo, right? There were a bunch of different um, questions or kind of considerations as I selected the photo. And what struck me was that uh, in the classroom, uh, there were, uh, actually it was predominantly uh, a classroom of English language learners. And uh, one of the students said, he's holding a cone hole, uh, cone hole. And uh, he meant the funnel. And I, (laughs) I stopped for a moment when I read read his notes and I realized that probably the the name cone hole is a better name uh, for this item that the scientist is holding than funnel is, because it very much is a cone with a hole in it. And uh, so it just struck me how brave, how um, willing students were. Um, to describe what they saw without getting caught up in do I have the correct terminology, right? Did I use the the scientific vocabulary? Um, you know, a lot of times science classes I think get uh, too caught up in that and so in this in this case uh, You know the, the the fact that it was a photograph the fact that there was some mystery the fact that there was no right answer um, I think really um, provided some space for the students to um put themselves out there and put their ideas out there without feeling like they had to have a single right answer. And uh, so this is uh, actually something on the, the Library of Congress blog. Um, and if you want to search for it, you can search uh, Carver or Tuskegee or Plants. Um, and this will be a little blog post uh, that comes up here. Um, but it's just one of my favorite moments uh, using primary sources.
1: Ernestine, how about jumping in with um, something to make your reality come alive for us, please?
6: Yeah, I was, I was just messing around with my microphone. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, the, the thing that, that, that comes alive most is still the idea that you can find so many different resources related to so many different themes, topics, ideas, and concepts across K-12 knowledge. Um, Every time there's a need for looking for an item, you can almost find anything um, on the Library of Congress's website, depending on any grade that you're teaching. And one of the things that that has been really prominent for me in my experience is finding those opportunities where teachers are not constantly looking for things. You can do a quick search on on the topic and be able to come up with several items and then basically think about what we started the conversation with. How will you be able to choose or select an item that best meets the instructional goals of a lesson or a unit? Um, One of the the most recent um, stories that we um, experienced was when a, a teacher had talked about the fact that once she started using primary sources with her students, she noticed such a change in her instructional planning in her instructional goals, and also the ways in which students started generating their own questions. The, the goal of the school that I was working with, they wanted to think about how do we get students to become more than just answer getters? How do we get them to start thinking and asking their own questions? So that was one of the things that they wanted to work on and it just seemed like across the board they all reported that once they started incorporating primary sources into their instruction they found that the students were the ones that were driving the thinking so that was a, a, a real big moment um, in, in my experience just looking at the ways in which we've come so far in the way we treat and use primary sources in our classrooms.
5: Um, Something that I think about a profound moment was when I was working with middle school students, and I was showing them items from collections. And I think I'm going to be able to share this here. I'm going to try this. And this picture, let me see. Um, this picture of two young boys in um, Norfolk, Virginia, and they're particularly interesting because they're the older one is maybe looks like he's not too much younger than my students were at the time. They were sixth graders who are you know about eleven years old, and this boy looks to be maybe ten or eleven, and so that struck them as as this was of the and it was from some place that they may have been. So that was the first thing that got them really excited, which I thought was great because they could see this sign over here and they could see the shape of this building, and they wanted to like go on the bus and see if they could find where that building was. So they like, can we drive around Norfolk until we see where that was. And we ended up not doing that. Uh, but the fact that they were intrigued by that so close to home, that this was something that they could actually um, maybe get their brains around. And then the fact that these children were, were dressed in ways that were so strange to them and um, one boy is, is not wearing any shoes. And also the idea that these children went to work every day. These are not kids who got to go to school and hang out with their friends. They went to work and had to earn a living for themselves. And so this was a big moment for me when they were able to, to kind of put that together for themselves and, um, and see those connections to themselves. And, and for sixth graders to be able to do that, to kind of come outside of themselves. And Tom was just talking about is when they're like, boy, that was real. The things you told us were true. And sure enough, when there's proof, they kind of are convinced and they, they, like, to, they like to see that real history that things really did happen.
1: Well, you have not disappointed collectively and individually. Um, You've given us a lot to think about. Um, Here are some of the things that floated to the top for me um, that you thought about, but it, it came back to not only what you thought about when you select primary sources, but a much wider conversation about the value. And what I heard is a lot about how primary sources help students um, take charge of their own learning. Ernestine's phrase that I'm still chewing on a little is generate their own thinking. And um, your anecdote summed that up too. Several of you talked about um, the value of making cross-curricular connections, um, especially the librarians in the group who have a real awareness of that, but Trey did too um, because none of these disciplines truly happen in a vacuum, right? Scientists have to know how to communicate or their discoveries um, are not valuable to the scientific community or or the, the world. Um, you've talked a lot about some sp- specific approaches that you take one primary source, several primary sources, um, one thing I'd like to do before we we leave is attempt to share my screen, and um, my connection has has been wobbly. So Trey or Tom, one of you, prepare to jump in. If I if I get lost, um, just you know interrupt me and tell me to hush. Um, You should be seeing the Library of Congress home screen right now. Um, and Kathy tells me that my screen is frozen. Is that right? Not seeing it. Okay, let me try turning my camera off and back on. Sharing the screen, and you should be looking at the Library of Congress homepage. Kathy, send me a text yes. if I'm wrong. We see it. Nope, can't see. Cannot see it or do.
4: We do see it. We do. We do
1: see it. Fabulous! I feel like such a winner. Um, so there are many paths to this. You can so- simply search Library of Congress primary source sets. Um, I'm gonna walk you through the path just quickly. I've clicked on the link to information for teachers. And everything, well, let me go back. One thing that I want to show you before I click on is Trey mentioned the blog. He talked about an example of a blog post. And the blog lives right here, fairly high up on the teacher's page. It is keyword searchable. Um, And it's a great way to uh, hear more from these educators that have been talking tonight because all of them have contributed to the blog. Um, It's also a great way to get ongoing information about timely things or about things that our staff has just been interested in. I'm going to the left nav now to click on classroom materials because that's where the primary source sets live. And we've talked about these quite a bit. You've seen pieces of them a couple of times. Um, I just want to show very quickly and a little bit intentionally and structured. There's a long list of these. I'm not gonna scroll all the way through it because I'm afraid that would make you uh, feel ill, but you can see it includes Civil War era things, the Constitution, the Dust Bowl, the Harlem Renaissance, so as well as immigration, which we really zeroed in on tonight. Um, This is what the immigration primary source set looks like. You've seen it a couple of times. We've talked a lot about the primary sources and they're all right there. I will quickly point out um, without opening it because I don't wanna jinx my bandwidth. Each one of these also comes with a PDF teacher's guide and the teacher's guide includes teaching ideas, um, a quick background about the theme or topic, um, ideas to get you started. Um, I don't wanna spend any more time than that on This, I I wanna respect your time, and we're coming up on the end of our time together. So I'm going to just say thank you all so much, so much um, for taking time at the end of a long, busy day. Thanks to those of you who are joining us live. Thanks to the amazing panel presenters, Ernestine, Rebecca, Teresa, Tom, Trey. Um, Man, I wish we could all be in the same room live. Maybe someday that'll happen. Um, But um, that is the end of our time together. I want to thank everybody and good night.